Welcome to the Time Machine Talk Show. Here's your host, Miss Ziegler. Welcome back to the beginning of the year. I'm so excited to get AP World History started. This podcast will help you navigate through the reading of the Strayer textbook. It's very important that you're doing your reading because we can't possibly cover all the information we need to in class. There's just too much of it. So if you want to do well in AP World History and well on the exam at the end of the year, you gotta do this reading. So, let me start off by telling you, if you have any questions concerning this podcast, my email is msjziegler at gmail.com. That's missjziegler at gmail.com. Feel free to email me. You can also stop by the Learning Commons. That's where I'm located this year, and I will help you out with anything that I can. All right, so without further ado, let's get started. Turn in your Strayer textbooks to page number five. This is where it talks about the Neolithic Revolution, which you should also have some background knowledge on considering you've all done your summer assignments, right? All right, so on page number five, we're gonna start in paragraph number two. And it says, this food producing revolution, also considered in chapter one, surely marks the single most significant and enduring transformation of the human condition and of human relationships to the natural world. Now, our species learn to exploit and manipulate particular organisms, both plant and animal, even as we created new and simplified ecosystems. The entire period from the beginning of agriculture to the Industrial Revolution around 1750 might be considered a single phase of the human story, the age of agriculture, calculated now on a time scale of millennia or centuries rather than the more extended periods of earlier eras. Although the age of agriculture was far shorter than the immense Paleolithic era that preceded it, farming and raising animals allowed for a substantial increase in human numbers and over many centuries an enduring transformation of the environment. Forests were felled, arid lands irrigated, meadows plowed, and mountains terraced. Increasingly, the landscape reflected human intentions and actions. So what so if I were taking notes on this section, I would make sure and remember that the Neolithic Revolution causes a surplus of crops. That means that humans are able to harvest more than what they had harvested before, and therefore they have food left over. They also have, because of this abundance, enough to go around. This is the first time that this has happened because if you remember from the Paleolithic era, they were mostly hunters and gatherers. So the majority of their day was trying to find food. Now, if you have surplus of crops, you also have extra time to do other things like writing and forming governments. And this is what's going to improve their civilizations greatly. Also, the raising of domestic animals is going to change things greatly as well because now you don't have to move around with the herds the way they did in the Paleolithic era. Where it talks about the forest being felled, think about how that would affect the environments or the lands being irrigated and the meadows being plowed, mountains terraced. Look up on Google what that means and you can see a picture of mountains being terraced. Basically 
it's enable uh, it enables civilizations and people to farm on mountainsides. So that is going to change the environment greatly as well. This is the first time that that's really happened a lot. Previously in the Paleolithic, they would have just moved around and it wouldn't have affected the environment as much as say cutting down a bunch of trees is going to affect the environment. So think about what some effects on the environment might happen as a result of trees being cut down and mountains being terraced. That's something that's kind of important in this time frame. All right, so let's look at the third paragraph. It says, in the various beginnings of food production lay the foundations for some of the most enduring divisions within the larger human community. Much depended on the luck of the draw, on the climate and soils, on the various wild plants and animals that were available for domestication. Everywhere, communities worked within their environments to develop a consistent supply of food. Some relied primarily on single crops, while others cultivated several crops that collectively met their needs. Root crops, such as potatoes, were prominent in the Andes, while tree crops, such as bananas, were important in Africa, and grain crops, such as wheat, rice, or corn, prevailed elsewhere. Many communities engaged heavily in small or large animal husbandry, but others, especially in the Americas, did not. In some regions, people embraced agriculture on a full-time basis, but many more agricultural communities, at least initially, continued to rely in part on gathering, hunting, or fishing for their dietary needs. These various approaches led to a spectrum of settlement patterns from sedentary villages to fully nomadic communities and many in between. In general, the most mobile of these societies were those of pastoralists, who depended heavily on their herds of domesticated animals for survival. Such communities, which usually thrived in a more arid environments and where farming was difficult, had moved frequently, often in regular seasonal patterns to secure productive pasture lands for their animals. However, not all were fully nomadic, because in some regions, pastoralists were able to combine a permanent settlement with seasonal migration of animals to grazing areas. Thus, the agricultural revolution fostered a wide variety of adaptions to the natural environment and equally a wide range of social organizations. So you can see here that it was different depending on where you were in the world. This takes me to germs, guns, and steel theory. Have you ever heard of it? That's a theory by Jared Diamond that talks about why the Europeans were able to conquer so much of the world and why they were so much more progressed than other areas of the world. And it talks about how because Europeans had large domesticated animals that they could farm with, they were able to get more surplus and thus free up more people to invent things like guns and use steel and enabled them to conquer the world, whereas the Native Americans in the United States didn't have large domesticated animals. In fact, the only domesticated animal that they would have been able to have was the llama. And if you know anything about llamas, you would know that you can't really farm with those. They're not beasts of burden the way that an ox or a horse is. So that's just a little bit of a intro to his theory about why Europeans were able to dominate and it backs up this idea that in different parts of the world people had different supplies and things to work with in order to make their communities better. And that's basically what that 
paragraph is talking about that some were more into agriculture some were still nomadic and pastoralist some stayed in one place that's what the word sedentary means a sedentary village is staying in one place you're not moving around anymore whereas a pastoralist is still nomadic and still relies heavily on those herds for survival so so just understand that it happened at different rates throughout the world depending on what the civilization had access to. The next couple paragraphs on page six talk about this turning point and how it makes civilization. So basically because of this large-scale agriculture, that's where civilizations come out of. And increasing technologies, uh, new concepts about men and women and warfare, all those things come from having civilizations. The next couple of paragraphs, entitled Time and World History, explains to you the difference between how we map out time in world history. So let's read that real quick. It says, Reckoning time is central to all historical study, for history is essentially the story of change over time. Recently, it has become standard in the Western world to refer to dates prior to the birth of Christ as BCE, before the Common Era replacing the earlier B.C. before Christ's usage. This convention is an effort to become less Christian-centered and Eurocentric in our use of language, although the chronology remains linked to the birth of Jesus. So basically what it's saying is that B.C. is what we used prior, and now we use B.C.E. It's the same thing. It still means before the birth of Christ, basically. Similarly, the time following the birth of Christ is referred to as CE, or Common Era, rather than AD, which was Latin for Year of the Lord. Dates in the more distant past are designated in this book as BP, before the present, by which scholars mean 1950, the dawn of the nuclear age, or simply as so many years ago. So just make sure that you understand that BCE is the same as BC, and CE is the same as AD. Now, if we're talking BCE, that starts at the big years and counts down to zero. Make sure you remember that, okay? BC is everything down to zero, and then at zero, it becomes CE, and it starts counting back up to present day. That's very important when looking at the timeline so that you understand how those things work together. All right, don't forget about completing your reading question for the Paleolithic and Neolithic Revolution. Basically what you're doing is looking for similarities and differences. You need at least eight differences and three similarities between the two ages. So check out your reading for that. Don't forget the gender roles in society. Those are very important. Throughout all of AP history, you will be looking at gender roles. So make sure you include that in the answers to that question. And I hope that you enjoyed the first episode of Time Machine Talk Show. I will be back to discuss early civilizations in the next broadcast. See you later.